Joy Rich, professor of modern culture and media at Brown University, um, and one of the co-organizers of this five-part series, Talking Television in a Pandemic, um, along with my co-organizers, Hunter Hargraves and Branding Monk Payton. Um, and we're coming to you via SCMS and JCMS's ACA Media. So I would like to welcome everyone to this podcast and especially welcome you all to our first episode on epistemology. So joining me today to talk about issues about how television is operating as a technology of knowledge or perhaps of ignorance these days, about how we know or don't know through TV, the various ways that we think and imagine through television, and about how we as viewers and critics might best understand TV's logics, right? We'll be talking about that. And joining me in doing that is an amazing group of scholars. So we have today Herman Gray, Emeritus Professor of Sociology from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Hello, how's everybody? We're glad to have you here, Herman. Glad to be here. <laughs> and then Emily Hasty, Professor and Chair of Film and Media Studies at Amherst College. Hello from Massachusetts. Taylor Miller, Assistant Professor and Peabody Media Center Academic Director at the University of Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. And then last, in alphabetical order, but certainly not least in terms of brilliance in this overwhelmingly brilliant group, is Lori Ouellette, Professor of Communication Studies and Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature, where she's currently department chair. Hi, everyone. And more info about all of these wonderful people will be posted at the ACA Media website. Since this is the first episode of this podcast, I wanted to start by talking just a teeny bit about uh, the way in which this series, Talking Television in a Pandemic, came about. So like so many people these days, I've been watching an enormous amount of television and having a hard time thinking about really anything other than what I'm seeing on television. So I decided to try specifically to really think about the way precisely I was thinking only through television. Um, and I wound up writing a piece called Watching Television in a Pandemic uh, that came out in Los Angeles Review of Books. So I was thinking about it, writing about it. At the same time, I was also watching TV together virtually with some friends who also happened to be TV scholars, Brandy Monk-Payton and Hunter Hargraves. Um, and while we were chatting ourselves about TV, we realized how wonderful it would be to extend the conversation, to try to bring in a range of TV scholars to talk about television in this pandemic, you know, at a time when TV significance seems so pronounced right? And when a critical view of television, of its epistemologies, its ideologies, its phenomenology, its technologies, and our pedagogy in teaching it, at a time when those things are so critical to think and talk about. TV for decades has been, and it still remains, our culture's dominant 
most prevalent media form, especially if you think of all the screens on which it's accessed. So it's, you know, for decades been an incredibly significant form, of course, but today with the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic, right, everybody seems glued to their screens um, for information, but sometimes getting misinformation, for company, for narrative pleasure, sometimes what seems like narrative survival, to fill time while we're at home for new ways of being together and of seeing and of thinking. I was particularly interested in my watching TV in a pandemic piece in thinking about television's position in our lives, the way that it that television exists and operates across the boundaries of the public and the private, the domestic and the social, the home and the world. And in a way, I think that that both maps and models how we're managing through this pandemic, right? So it's very much like the slogan that we hear today in the pandemic about being alone together, right? That alone together is what TV itself throughout its history is very much provided for good or for bad, that it both separates us yet joins us provides ways for us to know the outside world from our inside spaces. But then, of course, also risks media bubbles that can lead to as much ignorance as knowledge. It gives people ways to think, but also maybe sometimes ways to avoid having to think too much. So again, I think it raises really crucial issues about knowledge, what we know these days, how we know through TV, and how you know we can best engage with that. Um, so to open this up to those on the panel today, I'd love to hear from each of you what you think about the ways in which people are thinking through, knowing through television these days. This is Herman. Um, I'm struck by television as a site of dispute now, um, not even negotiation, but just dispute about our civic life and our social life and the ways in which people increasingly turn to television for not just information, but validation about how we feel. And so it seems to me that one of the things that's up for grabs is a notion of a common, a common good, a common square, a common set of concerns. And I've been really interested in the ways in which the common itself, the, the, the access to a common good, is a site of a, a kind of dispute and a kind of fight and a kind of disagreement. And the other thing is the ways in which the knowledge of television and the knowledge that television produces and the knowledge that we come to trust in television has also been the site of dispute and the kind of epistemological worldview that we can get through television are all kind of shaken in a way, right? And so we're sort of in a moment where turning to affirmation, turning to information, turning to each other through television seems to me to be one of the kind of contentions that we have to deal with. And so there have been some wonderful programming and, and I think documentaries are particularly important in this moment for a lot of those reasons. But I think there's some really, and we can talk about this later, interesting programs that try to help us work our way through 
those disputes without just living inside of our own echo chamber, right? And so I think there's a kind of really foundational role that um, television is playing kind of in this moment around knowledge, what we know, how we know, from whom we know, who we trust, and those sorts of things. So I find it really fascinating and rich to think about it in those terms. Yeah, I um, and that's Emily Hasty speaking. Oh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate Herman's comments about the common and would love for us to talk more about that, as well as Lynn's reference to narrative survival. And I think that those two um, are also linked in different ways and might be part of the very issue that creates a lack of a common, maybe. Um, I guess one of the ways that I've certainly been thinking about uh, knowing television is is linked very closely to experience, experience of the television screen as other multiple screens. So this is just another case. Um, it suddenly really magnified how television is even harder to define as one screen, as one platform. But I've also been thinking a lot about the ways in which I watch now exactly as, as Lynn's suggesting, like very much through the lens of COVID-19. And so suddenly I find myself, and I, I've seen a lot of people also on television talk about this, find myself projecting a state of COVID-19 onto everything I see, whether it's, you know, any kind of current nonfiction programming or in fact you know, uh, 1980s music videos, which I was watching the other morning, or contemporary uh, investigation serials. And, and so I, I'm fascinated by my own strangeness in that experience, but I think it may well be something that we are experiencing alone together. Um, I would say that this is Taylor. Um, I would say that the thing that is most interesting to me is um, someone who studies a lot of syndication is the notion of comfort TV and the way that people are turning to television and to the characters they love to figure out how they interact um, or deal with the situation. So I keep seeing all these Zoom reboots, which I'm totally stoked about because this is always going to be a genre now. <laughs> but I've seen The Nanny, The Office, This Is Us, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Schitt's Creek, Grace and Frankie did a read through of its pilot. The Golden Girls obviously cannot have a reboot, but instead what they did is they put the writers together to talk about how the girls themselves might deal with the pandemic. So there's something fascinating to me about the liveness of the moment and the way that we are turning to comfort TV to help us use these characters to figure out how we should navigate this very confusing time in a way that especially you know queer people have done for time immemorial. So that is what I've been really thinking. And The Golden Girls right now is actually in Hulu's uh, top 10 of most watched shows. Um, it's had 11 million viewers uh, since this whole thing started. So that's really fascinating to me. I'm Lori um, from the University of Minnesota. I have so many thoughts, <laughs> it's hard to choose, but I wanna go back to Herman's point about the lack of, or the, the absence of a commons and I was rereading Lynn Spiegel's piece on television after 9-11 to kind of think through what's the similarity and difference now in terms of COVID. And I think that it's an intensification of the trends she talked about in terms of the um, fragmentation of the audience and the way that politics itself has become a form of branding. And, you know, this is certainly 
the case with Fox versus MSNBC and the Pew Research Center did a study where they found um, recently that Fox viewers are, are more likely to believe a, a vaccine is coming right away and that the virus was created in a lab. So they're like some real differences in knowledge that are coming through with this dispute or this splintering. So to me, it's just, it's a magnification of trends that have been in place since um, the 80s and have been intensifying. Uh, But I think there's another layer to it now, which is that there are these hierarchies of knowledge that come out of entertainment versus news. So you have all these celebrity doctors like Drew and Um, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, who are now in the news giving advice about infectious disease, which they know nothing about. um, And they come from this feminized, delegitimated sphere. And their knowledge is kind of lining up with Trump, who also comes from that sphere. So it's really tricky because as TV scholars, we've been arguing for some time against the delegitimation of certain kinds of knowledge and culture. And than to kind of see this happening. It's like, I want to take it all back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Mrs. Herman, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about along these lines is time and the sort of collapse of time, both in terms of COVID and the availability of time and the sort of way in which we each become curators of a, a kind of temporal relationship to the screen and to our likes and our tastes. But also thinking about the kind of elsewhere and the ways in which time appears in something like Black Mirror or something like Watchmen, right? The ways in which time gets scrambled and our longing for an elsewhere, right? Not just a return to something, but a kind of elsewhere that, that is beyond the kind of the kind of reminder, you know, of both of what we've lost, but the danger of the present. So time is a really interesting construct in light of both the localism and the network, but the, the ways, but the ways in which knowledge itself gets folded back into a question of whose time, whose knowledge, you know, the sort of ways in which the logic that we've become accustomed to are, are kind of scrambled. I'd also say that the elsewhere or the elsewhen is almost anything but now, right? So even though I, I'm with you on um, on entering into those spaces that um, and temporalities that we haven't and couldn't occupy, I actually find myself seeing those things that were made pre-COVID as of such another time as well, that that is, and not just a nostalgic time, but a kind of impossible time, right, um, to occupy. And and that for me is one of the kind of produces that uncanniness, I suppose, of looking at whatever, an episode of Bones and thinking like, why are they all in the space together? Um, <laughs> uh, and also like longing for the space together at this at the same time. But I think that I think that some of the, the series that you're describing are designed almost with an epidemic like this, a global pandemic in mind. And certainly when it's when this started, I thought, oh, my goodness, Walking Dead was always, always going to happen at some level. Right. And so, I mean, a different kind of else, else when and elsewhere, I suppose. I mean, it is so interesting what you're all saying. And I think that when we think about television's epistemology is already in a way so multiple 
because it does give both a time now and a time that's not now and both like present but elsewhere right so at this particular moment you know there is i think in a way a return back to live television right which many people had said was sort of over in this world of streaming and and etc now people are tuning in live to the press conferences so there's this return to to liveness but at the same time there's also you know as taylor was saying this return also to old comforting series right to syndicated series for comfort so that we're both in the live and in the past, there's also, I think it's fascinating that at this moment in time, there's so many alternative history, um, speculative history programs on TV. So there's this, we're both in the time and we're out of the time. Um, and then I think that that leads to, you know, in a way, as Lori was saying, this fragmentation of knowledge, depending on who's watching what. So again, we're in a moment when more people, it seems, than had been the case recently, are all watching the same things, right? The press conferences, again, Golden Girls, Tiger King that so many people tuned yes. into. So in a way, there's almost a return to the TV event, right, where everybody's watching the same thing. But yet we also see these incredible media bubbles, right, through, well, which particular news station are you watching? And you have a totally different knowledge or ignorance of what's going on with the pandemic, depending on, you know, whether you're watching Fox News or One America News versus if you're watching, you know, CNN, I mean, very different, or if you're watching international news. So that it seems like we're having both a kind of coming together and a splitting apart at the same time, which I think leads to some of the tensions that, you know, that Herman was talking about in terms of the commons or that Laurie was talking about in terms of, you know, that, that it's true that television scholars for years have been trying to say, well, let's look at the other possibilities of knowledge production that can come through, through different kinds of forms, more affective forms, right? Melodrama, you know, whereas now we're, we're a little worried, well, wait a minute, is that, you know, producing only an affective as opposed to a an informed account. So again, I think we have this strange both coming together and splitting apart. Well, I wonder if we, this is Emily again, coming back to what Lori was saying, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about this, Lori, and your invocation also of Spiegel. I, I wonder if we want to talk about how we know through people in their houses, right? So Zoom is now television um, from talk show hosts and news broadcasters to other kinds of events that are taking place via YouTube channels in particular, whether they're interviews with artists on um, the Museum of Modern Arts YouTube channel or some other kinds of events so that so that we're moving between also homes in these really strange ways, which is very much of television's liveness, its presence and its domestic space as well. I do have some thoughts on that. I've been thinking a lot about how, despite the political bifurcation, there's also an imagined community that's being constructed through television, um, through remote um, broadcasting. And so we see all of this talent working at home and we see their pets and all these bloopers and they don't have pants on and we see like into their kind of intimate worlds um, and they're using the same technologies we are 
and we get the sense that um, that we're all in this together. And even the scripted shows like Saturday Night Live and Parks and Rec, they're kind of showing us that we now have to use all these technologies. And and we're kind of this in the same place, you know, quarantined. And I think that the the problem with that is that it, and it, it occurs across political lines. And and the problem is who it excludes from the imagined community and. And who it excludes are the people who don't have time to watch TV because they're delivering groceries and because they're essential employees or they don't have a stable home or, um, you know, they're they're not part of this um, self-quarantined population. And that worries me because they just become sometimes the objects of news stories and concern, um, but they're not part of this kind of imaginary community of, of self-quarantine. and. And so it's really, really exclusive in terms of class and race and um, also gender, because, you know, a lot of um, women at home, you know, also don't have time. So that was my thought is that it's not a political um, or a national community, but it's an imagined community around this shared everyday, you know, tedium and having to use these technologies. But it's also exclusive. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely a critical argument. And the way, as as you point out, thinking about who's represented on TV as a knower versus who's just the object known or the object of of mystery, right? Um, And who has the ability to tune into those things or not and add to that conversation that those disparities are absolutely critical and, of course, line up with the disparities in terms of you know, who is dying from the virus. That, that, uh, that line of uh, thinking that Lori was talking about reminds me of um, one of my favorite programs from last year. Uh, we gave it a Peabody Award, uh, which was uh, Random Acts of Splendidness. And random, I think, illustrates exactly what Lori was talking about, particularly now in thinking about not only who's excluded, but television knowledge itself. Right, that like the zone of comfort was for many people a zone of horror, right? And the kind of knowledges about whiteness, or the knowledges about masculinity, or the knowledges about patriarchy, or the knowledges about sort of heteronormativity that the show tries to both stage and figure out a way through is, I think, brilliant, right? And and the other element of that that I think we're seeing some of it, and we're seeing some of it being sort of uh, translated into a kind of transactional relationship is the question of care, right? Like who do we, who, who in this moment do we get to care for, right? Do we get to, to kind of imagine ourselves as aligned with in terms of care, in terms of grief, in terms of kind of effective connection to? And I think television sort of critical in its most kind of critical moments, and this is why I was thinking about random, acts uh, really does do a good job of reminding us of those tensions, right? And opening the spaces in which people can um, find new imagined communities or imagined communities differently in the way that Lori was talking about. So Herman, you had just mentioned uh, a show that you thought was instructive at this moment. And I know some other people had mentioned various shows and talking The Walking Dead, etc. Um, I'm wondering what other people, uh, Taylor, Lori, what you're watching these days and, and how you think that that is helping you think through television. 
I, I this. Oh, can I just say I do not want to go on record as watching The Walking Dead. <laughs> just a basic reference. <laughs> this is Emily Hasty does not want to go on record watching The Walking Dead. I hate that series more than anything other series. Okay, sorry about that, Taylor. Yeah, I, I so I um I was thinking about the, the common uh, as Herman mentioned, and I was thinking that the show that I think will define the pandemic is Tiger King, and had to watch that everyone watched it in order to at least get the memes you have to watch it so that is one of the shows that i immediately watched they're coming out with talk show episodes to follow up and now they're even um releasing potentially new episodes of the show so i think tiger king is as crazy as the pandemic moment and that was the one that i for sure watched yeah can i jump in about that i i also think that tiger king is is sort of fascinating for our moment. Very problematic in terms of its misogyny, I think, but fascinating for our moment. And I know I I read something on a TV message board uh, that was a comment from somebody in another country who said that seeing Tiger King was the first time that he could now understand how Trump became the U.S. president, which I found sort of fascinating because, of course, Tiger King is not about Trump in any way. The people on Tiger King, you know, maybe some, but probably many others did not actually vote for Trump. But I think that the way that it shows a certain kind of performativity that cuts across from queer performativity to reality show performativity that also helps to explain you know, the way that in a world that, again, there are certain interesting things happening around, let's say, queerness, but that can also elect Trump, that that's part of, I would argue, the same televisual logic. It's a similar televisual logic about asserting reality through performativity. So I do think that, that that's an interesting show for this moment. And I like that it has the great old talk show ethos of not making you feel like everything could be better, like most television does, but to illustrate that everything can always be worse. <laughs> I would also say another show that I've been watching at this moment that for me has been very interesting to think through, uh, the pandemic has been Pose, which uh, I think is really fascinating for, for again, a show Um, about living through a plague, right? For those who don't know it, it's about queer of color, trans of color communities around the ball scene um, and the house scene in New York during the time of HIV AIDS and is very much about, again, what does one do to live through a pandemic and and partially shows that the, the only way to survive that is through establishing community relations, redefining family. Television is so intertwined with the family and the home. So it's fascinating on Pose to see a different definition of what home or the house might mean, the family might mean, and how that can create communities across race, across gender, across sexuality to help people survive. It's it's also, I thought, had a very interesting both, you know, it is mainstream television. It's on, you know, a, a network, a cable network, but it also had its own critique about trying to survive through just mainstream visibility so that they have a plot that involves Madonna's Vogue video becoming popular and everybody thinking, oh, good, this is our moment of mainstream visibility and this is going to change our lives. 
And of course it doesn't, right? That they have to rely on one another to change their lives, not on mainstream visibility. So it's interesting to see, you know, mainstream television in a way showing those alternatives, but also critiquing the very idea that it's through mainstream visibility that things will change. So for me, that's an instructive show at this moment. Lori, what about you? What are you watching? Everything. But um, before I tell you about what I think is the most interesting show, I just want to say what um, I don't know if other people have had this experience, but I find that waiting um, for episodes has come back into my life as a way of marking time that it hasn't been since like the 70s. Like when's the new John Oliver or even the Hulu shows? It's like, oh, it's Wednesday. It's my, you know, this show is on. Um, <laughs> um, and so that's been really interesting. Um, I want to just briefly talk about uh, 90 Day Fiance Self-Quarantined, which is amazing. Um, I actually got tipped off to this by um, Tressie McMillan Cottom's um, Twitter feed, and it isn't something I would have normally watched. I would have seen it as work, but it's actually super fascinating because they don't have any crews um, or producers, and it's all self-filmed, and it's incredibly um, diverse in terms of, um, you know, people who are, there's a woman who is a home health aide, and she has to take her temperature, and she's a single mom of six and has to go to work to feed the family. And then there are just all these other people who are bored and playing with their cats. And um, there's someone calls in from prison and talks about what he fears about what's happening um, there. And there's a woman who goes to the grocery store and she's um, worried about um, discrimination against Asian um, people. And and they're all self-filming. And it reminds me of like the earlier genre of video diaries before reality TV became what it is now. Um, and there's something just incredibly um, slow and earnest and important about it. So if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, I mentioned Watchmen, and I still think that it's uh, re resonant particularly now. But the other one that Laura reminds me of is um, a lovely documentary called Hale County this morning, yeah. which is a POV one, but, uh, and particularly because of its, its uh, kind of poetic relationship to the mundane, to the ordinariness, to the kind of quotidian. And Lord knows we're in the middle of a kind of quotidian time in the middle of the pandemic, right? And so the fact that you get to see um, African-Americans in Alabama who pass time and make time and make regard for each other in ways that you never, ever see on television, I think is extraordinary. It's calming in some ways um, and it's comforting in ways that we probably seldom look to comfort, right? And, and the kinds of ambitions and the kinds of aspirations that happen in this very ordinary place and in this very ordinary time with these very ordinary people actually becomes quite extraordinary, which is why I think it's so profoundly important for right now. So, yeah, I think uh, just thinking about Hale County this morning, um, Herman, makes me think about just the kind of uh, the idealistic plan I think probably everyone has in a certain way um, uh, for COVID who can afford to actually engage in any 
form of idealism, right? Mm -hmm. That is very much of the Groundhog Day world, right? Of the same day unfolding every day. And so we have all these time, these, this time to not only, you know, master the art of ice sculpture, but also watch and read the things that we have never read or watched. And so, I mean, I actually have been finding myself watching things that are of either more of a quotidian nature that aren't as familiar to the kinds of things that I usually watch. But I'm also watching those things that I usually watch in that desire for for comfort TV as as Taylor invoked. And so I feel like there's also this way in which I'm living in this uh, these simultaneous zones right around around everything, but but definitely around television Um, and what I imagine accessing and what I am accessing and what kind of what kind of television is um, is part of my narrative survival, as Lynn said, and what kind of television takes me um, somewhere else and actually presents me with something, whether I talk about it as new knowledge or new experience or just a whole other way of being, right, um, in this moment. So it's television becomes almost, you know, part of that uh, potential aspiration to change our habits, as well as what we know. Yeah, it's so interesting what you guys are saying. I mean, I think in a way, again, television has always been in a sense about simultaneous zones, and about habits, and about in a way the the mix of the everyday and the eventful, right? So the TV on every day, we see the everyday lives, but yet it has to make those interesting and unusual. So it's both like our everyday and not like our everyday. So television in a way has always done those, but it seems like those things are now so much more pronounced. We feel it, we see it, we think about it now so much more, you know, in in this moment of the pandemic. I'd also, you know, would like to ask all of you, I mean, it's so, you know, we're all talking about in a way, the way we think through TV, for good or for bad. What do you all think we as TV scholars can do so that the knowledge we produce is not just a reiteration of what TV itself is doing? For example, television, you know, we get a, it's a knowledge producing machine, but it's also a commodity machine, right? That it's operates precisely by, in a way, commodifying knowledge. So many shows are based on sort of following clues, trying to, to know things, figure things out. That's what we're all doing now. But is there a way that our knowledge as critics is different from the, you know, the kind of neoliberal commodified knowledge of TV itself. Yeah, Taylor. One thing I will say is I actually signed a a petition to stop the Trump press conferences. I never thought I would do anything like that. But what really strikes me uh, so much as, you know, as a son of parents who support Donald Trump is the fragility of our country and the fragility of knowledge and how easily it is to uh, or how easy it is for you know anyone to just completely upset our our sanctioned knowers, <laughs> and so I, I as a TV critic that my answer to that question or as a, as a TV scholar or TV historian is that we have we have to stop these press conferences from getting out. He's using them to campaign. He's using them to push his own agenda and. I feel compelled in every Facebook comment I post on family member or people back home 
who are talking about this in such a misinformed way to encourage them to think critically about these press conferences, especially. Um, we're going to have to be wrapping up, but any final thoughts from, from anyone else? Just briefly to follow up on Taylor's comment, I think that we've got to this moment in this post-truth culture, the pandemic has really intensified that, that I find myself being much more self-reflexive about things I've written in the past. And, you know, and about some of the um, tendencies within TV studies and, um, you know, there were many generations of TV scholars who would argue against the idea of a false consciousness and the need for the intellectual to protect someone from the Trump press conferences. And it's a different moment now. Maybe we need some new tools. I don't know. Um, new paradigms. Mm -hmm. Herman, do you have any final thought? No, I, I was thinking as uh, Laurie was talking, I'm of that generation was probably <laughs> protecting, believing in the absence of false consciousness and wanting to protect folks from that, you know, that big conversation. I was struck by um, where our knowledge is circulating, right? I mean, so much of our, our profession is a kind of inward looking circulation. And sometimes we hope that our students get enough to take it back into the quarters of journalism and the industry and those kinds of places. And in that respect, I was very happy to see on something like Random Acts of Kindness, the role of television scholarship in the critiques the show was trying to make, right? It was not simply that, that it was the show was being self-reflexive about its own, its own complicity but it was using scholarship from television studies and African-American studies and feminist studies and queer studies to really think through its own role in producing its content. And I thought that that was a kind of moment at which, you know, the outward trajectory of the work was starting to have some legs. I also think that, you know, we're in a conversation with a lot of our colleagues who are professional television critics who write for newspapers and long form essays. And that this is an opportunity for the kind of, again, circulation and exchange to happen more robustly and not just a kind of professional ethos in which we build fortresses and protect our corner of the world, right? The pandemic has reminded, and this conversation has reminded that there's a, a pretty wide and knowledgeable, in quotes, circuit in which this information has legs. And I think television studies and television scholarship has a lot to say in that conversation, but in concert with other folks who are thinking critically about these kinds of questions as well. And I know that um, I know that you're going to do a, a special uh, podcast on pedagogy, but I guess I would just say that that's you know for me as a scholar and a teacher, one of the places that I've been uh, thinking about maintaining these conversations, and not just during the school year, since you know this the strange time is affecting everything, right? And I'm thinking about the ways in which I can still work with students over the course of the summer. Um, through, in fact, forums that are possible through the kinds of technologies that we're now using 
for teaching during the school year, you know, that we can gather and have conversations. And so I'm, you know, knowing how much we also need schedule. That's not just the schedule of, of television. Um, and without the schedule for students, certainly that uh, school enables, I'm thinking about how can I schedule in conversations in my own areas about film, about television, with my students to hopefully maintain some kind of anchor for them um, when they often feel like they don't have anchors. And also to think about the very kinds of questions that we're talking about today around knowing, knowing television and experiencing it and recognizing who is and who is not represented in the forums that we're watching. Yeah, no, I think that those are all wonderful points. And, and I think that what you guys are saying about opening up this knowledge is part of what the goal of this podcast series is about. So I do want to thank you all so much for participating in this. So again, thanks to all of our wonderful panel members this time around, Emily Hasty, Herman Gray, Lori Ouellette, Taylor Miller. You guys were all wonderful. Um, I also want, you know, on behalf of, of myself and my co-organizers, Hunter Hargrave and Brandy Monk-Payton, want to thank our sponsors, SCMS, uh, Acomedia, of course, the Department of Communication at Denison University, the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. I particularly want to thank Chris Becker, Bill Kirkpatrick, and Todd Thomason for supporting and assisting us with the podcast series. In terms of the series, next up will be the episode on ideology featuring Brandy Monk-Payton from Fordham University and guest Raquel Gates from the College of Staten Island CUNY. Amanda Ann Klein from East Carolina University, Juan Yamas Rodriguez from the University of Texas at Dallas, and Amy Villarejo from Cornell University. Um, and they'll be talking about the relations between televisual politics and aesthetics, identity and representation, communication and critique. Following that, there will be episodes on phenomenology, right? How we feel watching TV today. Um, including some of those issues we talked about, about comfort and discomfort. Television technology, what does it mean that we're in this changing technological environment and, and one in which, you know, metaphors of, you know, viral technology are now literalized right through the virus. Um, and then as, as Emily was emphasizing, pedagogy, right? How are we ourselves teaching this and what do we think about that? So there will be those episodes that will also have equally awesome guests. So please join us for those. Um, if you have comments or questions that you want to share or that you want to pose to people who will be on those episodes, we really welcome those. So you can post your comments and questions. You can either email us at talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com. That's all together, talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com. On Twitter, using the hashtag talktvinapandemic. Again, talktvinapandemic, hashtag. Or on Facebook, you can join the Acomedia Facebook group and then post questions there. So we look forward to hearing from you and we hope that you will stay tuned. Thanks. Thanks.